Gospel of John, chapter 13, and we'll be taking up this morning verses 1 uh, through 17. We have a tremendous privilege ahead as we uh, begin this next uh, several weeks of study. We have the privilege of being in the upper room, no longer with the Pharisees and scribes and others around, just the followers of Christ in a room with him to hear his parting words before he went to the cross of Calvary. Uh, this is known as the upper room ministry, and it covers John chapter 13 through 16. John 17 ends it with the prayer, insightful prayer of our high priest just before he went to do the work of our salvation. It's kind of a strange title to this uh, uh, message this morning, if you think about what what we just said, uh, why are we talking about greatness of God's people? And you'll understand why I've entitled the message that a little bit later. Uh, it has to do with the mind of the followers of Christ uh, during this time, and uh, I think we can associate with their situation uh, as they show their weakness as they demonstrate their lack of faith, as they uh, misconstrue what's going to happen, as they really didn't understand uh, the nature of their role of God's servants from the time that he would leave the earth. And uh, we don't want to be too hard on them. We want to be hard on ourselves. And uh, what the words that echo to me personally, I've been actually studying my next talk from this one, uh, where the opening words of that uh, chapter are, how long have you been with me, Philip? Uh, and uh, get that sense with these disciples that uh, they had heard a lot from the Lord, but he takes some particular topics to try and strengthen them and encourage them uh, as he is uh, about to leave them. Let's just read the uh, verses together. Uh, if you have a, I've got the slide, the uh, next slide shows the actual reading. If you're reading a few Bible, there, the reading is on page 1600. And 73, John chapter 13. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not every one of them was clean. 
When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. May God's Spirit touch our hearts and lives as we consider his word and the example that our Lord has, and teaching that our Lord has laid down uh, for us. We need to reach back a little bit and pick up some threads to understand the setting and context of the, uh, of the um, story that's before us. It's the morning on which the Passover feast is going to be celebrated, and the Lord and his disciples, of course, had no home in Jerusalem, so there, there had to have been to participate in the Passover uh, a location prepared for them. It's interesting that the Lord prepares the, the, the room. He, in the background, he had somehow communicated to an owner of a home, and we'll go into that in a moment, uh, that he wanted that room set aside. And it was a tradition of the, of the Jews of the time that if uh, there were guests in Jerusalem and they had no place to celebrate the Passover, that the hospitality of the local uh, Jewish people would come into play and people could go up to people's houses and say, we need a place to join uh, with you in the celebration of the pa- uh, Passover. Peter and John, two disciples, were commissioned to uh, go and uh, prepare this place and they were, I guess, in the area of Bethany at the time when Jesus commanded them to prepare. And the two people were to go and find a man. Jesus would identify the man that they would meet as one who was carrying a pitcher of water. Now, that seems a little bit strange at first, and I looked into it and found that it was normally the women who carried the, the pails and pitchers of water. We won't comment, comment on that any further, but that's how they... Uh, their culture worked, and the man would be the man would be identified as the one carrying this big picture of water uh, for the celebration of the feast. And uh, it's it's interesting to me, and I've entitled the the uh, the slide as as such. The part of the setting is this carrying of the water, the water of purification, the water of cleansing, into that room where the Passover would be celebrated. And here is this man that's identified to the disciples as the one preparing the way of the Lord, preparing the things that are going to occur that he had uh, uh, selected and chose that they would happen and in the prescribed place at the prescribed time and for the prescribed aspects of the feast. And we'll be going through that over the next couple of weeks to understand uh, a bit more about that uh, in, the, in the Gospel of John. So they follow him to, they, they, they follow this man, the two follow this man to, uh, to a home that was uh, in downtown Jerusalem. Apparently it was the home of John Mark, as, uh, as is hinted at in Scripture and recorded by tradition that this was so. Interestingly, this house was uh, located uh, near, um, not very far from where Jesus' trial would be held shortly after this, uh, this event. Uh, when Peg and I were in Jerusalem, we, came, we saw this church of, of St. Mark, and this is the the, the place where, if you can't read that slide, but it, pre- but it shows on the plaque that this was the upper room 
uh, claiming to be the upper room where this, uh, uh, where this feast was held, and it's marked by a church called St. Mark's Cathedral uh, to this day, if that's the, uh, ch- if that's the correct site. You learn a great deal about the early culture by uh, a book that I've really enjoyed over the years entitled The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, written by Alfred Eidersheim, and he gives a lot of background into the nature of this uh, of the feast and the and the description of the room. This this room uh, is is important because the situation within the room is uh, important because it was strategic for the Lord. The context I, I've just put a slide up just to remind you us who the twelve were in the room and uh, uh, and and the, who the twelve disciples were. Uh, we get confused sometimes by the names of John and and uh, Simon and Peter sometimes. And this was the list. There's my name item three there. Uh, the uh, and and they were they were gathered in this room uh, with the Lord, and we need to reach back a little bit in the story, and we find one of the threads going on here, and it's it's shown a couple times in the Gospels, that Jesus was teaching them to, that he was going to leave the earth, and what are the disciples doing? They're arguing about who was going to sit where, who was going to rule and reign when Jesus left. Who was going to be truly the great ones among the twelve of them to carry whatever this thing is going to be forward? That's where the title comes in, the nature of true greatness. Even at the celebration of Fastover, Fast Passover, where the Lord initiates the Lord's table, the participants are not worshiping. They're not, well, maybe they were. I'm putting words into scripture here a bit. But you can see that they're arguing amongst themselves as to what uh, what was going to, uh, to go on uh, after Jesus left. Next slide. Uh, one of the threads comes from Mark chapter 10. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. When the te- verse 41. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. So there was this internal contention and strife within the, within the uh, ranks and uh, it just speaks to our heart about how we are to have the proper attitude and the right humility before God when we gather together in his presence and when we, gather, and we, and when we live for him that we have a humility of heart and one that seeks to serve and not to usurp authority over and so on. Next slide. So the Lord arranged the table, we understand. There's some few hints. Uh, you have to dig it out of the, uh, out of the uh, text a little bit. But uh, th- this room was, uh, Eidersheim tells us, was much like this, a U-shaped table, uh, a low profile, probably 18 or 24 inches high. They, they, the people here would, fit on, would sit on, kneel on or relax on uh, uh, pillows on the floor. And... Uh, the, 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 you can see the appurtenances and uh, uh, stuff of a Passover meal. The uh, one aspect of the meal that's, uh, that's going on in the culture, and Jesus assumes that role, is the master of the family. The father of the house would be guiding people through the celebration of the, of the Sidar meal, I think it was called. Stephen, uh, Linda actually, I think, took us through uh, a practice one time of the what the Passover meal was about. My memory right? And uh, there was, a, there was a, quite a number of ritual steps that the Jewish people would go through in the celebration of the 
of the Passover meal. Well, Jesus was assuming the, the master of the house role and he designated where the, where the men were going to sit. And in particular, we know that wherever Jesus was sitting, the one on his right was the Apostle John. We know that from uh, Peter nudging him at one point in the discussion to uh, whisper in Jesus' ear, ear a question. We also know that, and this is what's pictured here, that to his left was Judas, who uh, he would share the sop with in identification of the one who had betrayed him already. And uh, he was right there beside him. And I, I, we don't really know, or I don't know anyway, the, the uh, location of the other uh, people around the room. The, uh, so these are some of the, the, the threads that are, are, are before us, before this chapter uh, uh, begins. Uh, the uh, seating arrangement, the location, these were all under the guidance of the Lord and guiding his people for a particular purpose as they gather. And that's really our, our by application, our situation as we gather Sunday by Sunday. We're not here just because it's the regular thing we do on a Sunday and come to church. We are to be sensitive to the fact that the Lord has arranged this. He's commanded it in certain ways. And he wants us to prepare to be here as we gather together in the body of Christ to fulfill his purposes amongst us at that particular time, to listen to his word, to listen to the Spirit of God applying his word to our lives and, go, and re- relying on him for the, the equipping of us to serve him the way he would have us, uh, have us serve course this uh, became very personal to me when I get Trevor's call the other morning at uh, 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning and uh, you know how your mind automatically says well but Lord and uh, and he corrected me fairly quickly and said uh, you must help uh, in this way and that's no just to reveal my weaknesses at the time and uh, uh, so on so if you look at the beginning of this chapter, there's a few things that John highlights, and these things that are highlighted are not just for uh, verses 1 to 17, but they're, the, they're really setting the stage for the upper room ministry. We've, we know about the betrayal deal, and we won't go through that, but it has already happened that Judas has betrayed Christ. He volunteered for a price to identify Christ uh, and serve as the prime witness, if you like, to identify who he was and what he was saying. This is, this is an amazing thing we need to, to apply to ourselves as well. We, can we really picture that one who had been with Jesus for three, three and a half years would betray him and hand him over to the unbelievers? It's a real call in our own assembly, in our own meeting to protect one another from this falling away that can happen for the greed of money or for uh, uh, reasons of immorality or disobedience or whatever they are, to try and encourage one another while it is still today to continue and to end well in the body of Christ. Three and a half years and Jesus is betrayed. The grace that we want to observe in Jesus, though, is that he was still there. Jesus knew what happened. But he gave Judas one more opportunity to turn to him, to seek him, and to be found by him. He was there. We don't know exactly in the harmony of the Gospels the order of events, but it seems that he was there. He was in the room, for sure. We don't know exactly when he left. 
But the Lord probably had him hear at least had him listen and hear the words of uh, the first 17 verses, and uh, that's all I studied <laughs> in detail. But the grace of our Lord, He's always seeking, He's always reaching. There is always that opportunity to hear Him and respond to Him, and He will grant you uh, the grace of the moment for salvation, for, for forgiveness, and so on. Uh, just uh, stick to that slide for a moment. Just before the Passover feast, we've covered that a little bit, and the Passover feast comes into the chapter uh, as we move along. Uh, the, the ver- these three verses also talk about just before his ascension, and Jesus, uh, John is identifying that Jesus full, fully knows that this last meeting was full of purpose for him, and, and in terms of how he prepares the hearts of the disciples to accept the events that are going to uh, be in the life of our Lord and how to carry on from there. And that's what these next couple of chapters are all about. Just before his going to the cross, his ascension, his death, burial, and resurrection, and finally his ascension and his exit uh, physically as, the, as Jesus from the, from the earth, if I can word it that way. And again, just before the full display of his love, that love is being shown in verses 1 through 17, but it continues through this whole series of chapters for us to understand the nature of his love. And then we come to his death where he fully displayed the love of God, the love of Christ for the whole world, and he gave himself for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should have everlasting life. And then we pointed out the, the nature of the people around him at the time, uh, their contention uh, during their discussions and contention for, for greatness. So that, that's the setting of what goes on. The next step, uh, we'll just turn to it, is the actual service that Jesus uh, provided for the disciples. And we're, we're, we're familiar with this story. I just want to highlight one or two things. That, uh, first thing is that in that culture of the day, when people came to your door, part of the part, with the dirty sandals and riding the horses in or mules in or whatever, it was a common practice that the household servant in a wealthy home or one of the people in the family, probably the junior junior one in the family, would would wash the feet of the uh, uh, of those that were being given hospitality. In this case, the Lord steps down as we were thinking at communion uh, from the being the master of the feast, being the the, one, the Lord of heaven, being the King of kings and the one who is here uh, in, incarnate in human flesh, the Father residing in him, he stoops down to wash the disciples' feet. What's going on in their minds? They're arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They're arguing about who's going to sit where. They're arguing about what position each and role each one will play after Jesus leaves. And here Jesus is trying to give them a lesson about humility. And he bows down before them. And one by one, he, he washes their feet. comes to Peter, of course. And uh, uh, Peter is the exemplar of, of a lack of something. We don't want to put too many words in it. We're going to have to face Peter one day. But, but he, he obviously was refusing the Lord's service to him. We might think it's because he thought that the Lord was way too high to be doing the work of a servant. He might have thought that he, he was not needing his feet washed. We just don't really know. 
but he was refusing the Lord's service in his life. And that's the, at least most of the time, it's the application of pride and the lack of humility. So many people miss becoming Christians because there's something they need to do, that they're on their own, that they don't need God, but they, if they're going to earn anything or they're going to have anything in eternity, it's got to be earned. And this basic attitude of humility before our Maker and acknowledging our dependence upon Him for our very existence and for His gifts to us, we need to humble ourselves before Him. And that precedes salvation, doesn't it? And that's true in, this, in the sequence of this chapter, that we, we need to have a humble attitude before God to receive his, the gift of his Son, the gift of salvation, in order to receive him. If we receive him because we think we, it's just another way we can maneuver things and earn God's, God's favor and gather some points before him, we, we've missed the very attitude that Peter was being enjoined by our Lord to have in his mind. Be humble before me and please accept the service and the gifts that uh, I offer to you this day attitude of humility was fundamental for Peter and finally he submitted to it and the Lord washed his feet but next slide the second part of of the symbolism of what the Lord did was was very clear and he expounded on it that there was an initial full uh, cleansing I'd just like to draw you back to those verses that are so important to the understanding of what Jesus was trying to teach Peter Peter says you shall never wash my feet Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. It's so important to see that what Jesus was talking about was not the physical washing of his feet. That was about humility. The next step was accepting the cleansing of the Lord for our sinful state. Accepting it as a gift from him. And if we don't accept that gift, we are not part of his. Judas is listening to this. Why did he miss this message? I I just can't fathom it. But Peter absorbed it a little bit and he became a full proponent of it as we see him after the resurrection empowered by what God had done in his life. The action of God's initial cleansing is like water washing through our minds, our souls, our hearts, cleansing us from the sin that previously was there and offering a cleansing that before God, makes us righteous before Him for all eternity. When He cleanses us from sin, when we trust Him for our salvation, when we trust in His finished work for that offering to be made by God, we are His forever. We are clean forever. In God's sight, we are seen as being holy. But there's another part to that. And Peter uh, Peter kind of stumbles into it, I guess you could say, Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Well, if it's a good thing for this and I get washed, let's do the whole thing. Well, he just missed the point that Jesus was already making to him. I have already washed you. You are mine. What you do need, though, even in Peter's instant there where he was sinning against God, we need to have our feet washed. We need to be cleansed from our day-to-day sin that we are all prone uh, to do in our, li- in our lives. A person who has had a bath, he's had that initial 
and full cleansing. We could maybe change the slide here. Uh, goes to the heart of ongoing sin and what happens with it. I love to look up the verses around this by the people who were in that room. We all know what the Apostle Paul said about uh, being cleansed and purified and uh, what the writer in Hebrew said. But I love to look at the words of James and the words of Peter and the words of John on this topic of ongoing sin, being originally cleansed, being made his, put into his family, and First John chapter 3, those who, if you sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The writers who were in that room grasped what Jesus was trying to tell them about uh, and instruct them concerning the purpose of his work when, as he was going to the cross of, of Calvary. A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet, verse 10, his whole body is clean and you are clean though not every one of you. And Judas took it in his own hands, first to, de- to b- betray, but secondly, to refuse this final offer to him of salvation, cleansing, and becoming uh, his own. And we know that's the case, because in this, at least in the way the chapter's written, uh, he was still there during the Passover until the, the uh, dipping in the uh, cup was uh, done together, serving as the identification by Jesus, of the one who was, uh, uh, had betrayed him. So that's the symbolism of the, of the event and the service that our Lord provided. An attitude of humility is fundamental. The action of God's initial bath is, uh, is the cleansing that applies to every Christian who trusts him for salvation, every person who trusts him for salvation. And we are all fully aware of our need of ongoing cleansing and seeking to have his forgiveness when we do fall and fail him, uh, as Peter and the other disciples did. Uh, next slide is one that I don't want to spend much time on, but uh, some of the peop- some people interpret this chapter very, uh, very um, literally that Jesus was commanding Christians of all time in the church to wash one another's feet. Uh, and uh, there's nothing wrong with that if a church seeks to do that and it's, uh, it's uh, certainly something that can be done. But uh, I think we've seen that, and I've tried to stress that this washing of feet was a cultural practice for cultural reasons that the Lord took the, that practice to instruct his disciples that day. Uh, nowhere else in the New Testament is it taught or exhorted to, to wash one another's feet. Normally when we look for an ordinance of the church, uh, we look to the, exa- the teaching of Christ, his, his example in the, in the Gospels. We look to how uh, things were practiced in the book of Acts. We look to the uh, particular teaching of the, uh, uh, in the letters uh, uh, through, by the various uh, writers of the letters of the New Testament. And in this case, uh, n- uh, no three of those tests, apart from this, this one command, uh, uh, applies. So we, we don't take it as an ordinance of the church even though some do practice it that way, make it a part of Easter. But what we are surely to practice is the principles of the symbolism that God put forward, or Jesus put forward, uh, both put forward, to his disciples that day. Your attitude to serve, if you want to be truly great in the kingdom of heaven, is to be humble before God the Father, before his Son, and before the Holy Spirit. And be uh, cleansed, become his through a cleansing, through salvation and continue to keep ourselves blameless, holy, 
acceptable to him in our practice day by day as we seek to live uh, blamelessly and righteously before him. Last slide. I'd like us just to turn to the Lord's words at the end for the summary of what constitutes true greatness in the people of God. Uh, and, And it includes, of course, these three things we've already mentioned. But notice what he says to them. Did you understand what I have done for you? And let's ask ourselves that question. Do we really understand what Jesus was doing that day? And hopefully uh, we've got it right as we've studied together. Jesus says these things. Number one, I am, and I love the words, I am. It's not, I, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but they were very familiar with his claims of I am, as we know through the Gospels. He says, I am your teacher. I am your Lord. I am your cleanser. I am your example. Under this heading of the example of Christ, we are together be humble to, to be humble before God. And this togetherness of humility that he was urging on his disciples is something we need to note in our church life. We are to be humble to one another as his servants. Yes, there's accountability for elders and leaders of this or of that. But this is to characterize the way we serve the Lord together. We are to be humble together before the Lord. We are to wash one another's feet, in other words. We are to listen to his working in others', others lives. We are to watch and, and appreciate the gifts that they have by the Lord, by the Lord as, they, as his people practice them. We need to be humble as we get into difficult times of interpretation or practice or what should we do We need to humble ourselves and listen to the voice of the Lord acting in the lives of individuals and wash one another's feet, be humble towards one another as we serve him. Uh, And then the last part of it, it should not go unnoticed. He says, and you are to be providing the message as I have sent you. It's easy to skip over that. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. He was instructing his disciples to be his messengers. And not only by his example are we to do that, but by his individual personal call and our collective, individual and collective responsibility to be his messengers in our, in our families, in our community, and in our, our, our walk with him wherever we, we are. And then he closes this part with those words. Now that you know these things, how many can say they, careful now, how many can say they know these things now? No one wants to because they know the next, the next part. Or maybe they just fell asleep for the hour. Yeah, okay. You will be blessed if you do them. So it's not only the hearing, not only the understanding, not only the time being with the Lord, but going away and doing them. And as a result of his work in our lives, with a humble attitude, with a holy sense of how we're to live before him, heeding his personal call, we will be blessed if we do them. I'm going to call my brother David Hook, if he would come and close our meeting in prayer.